There is an urban legend that tends to tell us that in a lifetime, we tend to spend the average of about three years of our lives just waiting. You might be surprised to know that they've done some studies in the United States where they've actually tried to find out how much time do people spend just waiting. So here are the stats. Apparently, New Yorkers were leading the time in terms of waiting. And according to a 25 city survey, New Yorkers spend an average of six minutes and 51 seconds waiting on individual store lines. And then there's other cities that follow. Which lines do people hate most? Well, the ones at the supermarkets. Also, the survey found that, and it's not surprising, that usually the ones that go to stores where they have to wait quite a long time, they will not return back because time is precious. The average waiting time at a doctor's is about 24 minutes. Would you try to guess which types of doctors spend most of their time with the patients? It's neurosurgeons. For obvious reasons, they tend to spend 30 minutes because obviously patients have very important questions that they feel they want to have an answer. And the average waiting time uh, at uh, the emergency room uh, is about four hours and seven minutes. But if you really, really hate waiting, apparently you shouldn't go to Russia. It uh, seems to say that in a, in a survey done in European countries as well as in Russia. It seems like Russians probably spend most of their time waiting in queues, followed by Italians and Bulgarians. And apparently the easier ones in terms of waiting uh, are the Swedes with an average of 2.2 minutes per line. We hate waiting. You and I know we hate waiting. And in this series entitled Waiting Rooms, we talked about situations and difficulties that we often face in our life and we will find ourselves in those waiting room moments in our lives and all of us will have to face them. What do we do? We can't control the circumstances but we can control the way we respond to those circumstances and therefore I want to make the suggestion that we should be making some smart choices when in the waiting rooms of life. And today we're going to join on a journey with a very famous character in the scriptures in the Old Testament, whose name is Joseph. And we're going to journey with Joseph and see how he made the choice to be a servant while he found himself in the waiting room of life. So we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37. And uh, in an amazing way, Joseph started in his life with something that was his blessing that actually became his curse. Genesis 37 verses 3 and 4. Now Israel, that's Joseph's father, loved Joseph more than any one of his other sons because he was born to him in old age and he made an ornate robe for him. You remember Joseph's Technicolor dream coat. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word of him. So what seemed to be his father's favoritism towards him and what seemed to be the special privilege that he enjoyed 
which was communicated through the special code that his father made for him, became a curse for Joseph because his brothers really disliked, and we can't criticize them for it, the favoritism that his father showed towards him. As we follow the story, Joseph had a dream. And when he told the dream to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen, in this dream that I had, we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said to them. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you had? Would your mother and I and your brothers actually come down and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this matter in mind. It starts with just something that often is found in normal families that actually have a dysfunctional way of being, where parents show favoritism. And in the midst of this favoritism, shown by the code that Joseph wore from his father, he also has this supernatural dream from God. And this seems to suggest that he would have a leadership role. But the jealousy and the antagonism that his brothers had towards him is quickly escalating. Do not underestimate how quickly feelings that might seem slightly superficial, low-key, suddenly get blown out of proportion. And here is how the story unfolds. Chapter 37, verses 17 to 28. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. When they found him in a distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let him take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the system here in the wilderness. Don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the system. The system was empty. There was no water in it. They sat down to eat their meal. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brother, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to these Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. So his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to all the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. This is the backdrop of the story. A favored son loved by his father is strongly disliked by his brothers. And actually his life is a nightmare or a roller coaster 
going up and down. And this is the very beginning of the journey that started so well, being born in a family, having a wonderful privilege as a beloved son of the father. But then the roller coaster starts descending and things just go wrong. But in the midst of him being disliked by his brothers before he goes to his brothers and he's sold into slavery, Joseph makes this choice in the waiting room of life. So obviously he had a dream from God, a supernatural, powerful dream that he was going to be a leader. It didn't feel at that stage in any way that he was going to be a leader or that his brothers would respect him. So you find him making that choice in the waiting room of life to serve in the midst of adversity. So the backdrop is his brothers are jealous of him and jealous of the favoritism he shows when he shares with them in his innocence without any bragging or boasting. There's no hint in the story that this was done in the wrong way or with arrogance. His brothers just dismiss him and mock him. But he chooses to serve in adversity. Now, his brothers had gone to graze his father's sheep near Shechem. This is chapter 37, verses 12 to 14. And his father said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see that all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring back word to him. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. This is the first passage and the first episode that gives us the hint that in the midst of the waiting room of his life, in the midst of adversity, Joseph is choosing to serve others. And this time it was his brothers who disliked him, who hated him. I love his amazing response to serve. I mean, he could have had loads of reasons not to serve them. They were mocking him. They were dismissive of the dream that he had. Although he'd never said or done anything to provoke their hostility, they were incredibly hostile and dismissive towards him. He could have just refused to go. He could have also had a chip on his shoulder. And when his father is calling him to serve, he could have said to his father, do you not remember the dreams God gave me? I'm going to be a leader. Leaders don't just go to look after his brothers. And on top of it all, probably his third reason why he could have not served, it was a chore. There was no glory in going to see his brothers and to check up on them to see whether they were well enough. Joseph could have said, Father, could you not send a servant? Who do you think I am? I am the leader God promised in those two dreams that actually you will all bow towards me. Joseph doesn't use any of the excuses. Joseph doesn't try to get out of it. He chooses to be obedient to his father, loving towards his brothers, caring for them and responds to the call and the invitation to serve that his father is giving him. He does this because he loves them. He loves his father and he loves his brothers, despite the hostility that he received. And he does it because there is something in Joseph's spiritual DNA that actually qualifies him to be a future leader. He doesn't put himself first. So he goes out and he looks out for them. 
That's the first episode that convinces me that in the waiting room of his life, Joseph made a choice to serve. The second episode, and we fast forward the story, and Joseph, you remember, I read earlier on, is sold to the Ishmaelites traders who end up selling him as a slave into an Egyptian's house. And Potiphar, who was the head of the MI5 or the head of the security guards of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, ends up being his master. He does really well and the rollercoaster is going up again. It's this rollercoaster journey in, in Joseph's life and things are really looking up. Things are great and everything seems to be going well for him until Mrs. Potiphar lays her eyes on him and wants to have an affair with him. Joseph continually refuses her invitation and her advances and ends up at one point radically just fleeing. She grabs hold of his coat. It's almost like the, the, the backdrop of the story of Joseph and Joseph's life is the story of coats. And basically he, he runs away, but she just makes a false allegation that he tried to rape her and then she scared him off. His master is livid. He throws him into prison, which in fact is a blessing in disguise because he could have just really killed him. While he finds himself in the prison, this is what's happening. The captain of the guard assigned all the other prisoners to Joseph. This is chapter 40, verses 4 to 8. And Joseph attended to them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who found themselves as well in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When, Jesus, when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not all interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. It's the second episode, the second bit of evidence that shows me, it shows us that Joseph in the waiting room of life makes a choice, a choice to serve. Now, if you were to put yourself into his sandals, he could have had every reason on earth to blame God. God, if you truly are in control of my life, why on earth, when I tried to do the right thing, I tried to live in a moral way, I didn't take advantage of my master's wife, I didn't have an affair with her, I didn't cheat on him, I didn't break his trust. God, if you really are God, why did you allow this injustice to happen? He could have been so angry with God, rightfully so. He could have also been incredibly disappointed because in all of this, he trusted people. He tried to do the right thing towards people. He tried to do a loving thing and it backfired against him. And he could have got to the place and the easiest choice for Joseph is to distrust people and to hate people and to become bitter and cynical and say to himself, I will never ever do anything for anyone else ever again. I will just look after number one. It's just me. And ruthlessly decide 
he was not going to take any interest in anybody else, but just look after himself with brutal selfishness. And again, he could have blamed him. He could have done that and he would have been fairly justified given the development of the events in his life. But he doesn't do that. Instead, we find him once again in the waiting room of life, making a choice and choosing to serve. And the first thing that you see in his servanthood is that he pays attention and he sees that they were dejected. That means he was a people person. He could have simply crossed people off and said, I don't want to have anything to do with people. He saw others. He saw that they were broken-hearted, sad, down, dejected. And he noticed it. And again, he could have just simply noticed that. Loads of us notice a lot of things, but you know what? I'm looking after number one. Move on. Who cares? Don't really have time for people. I don't have time for their feelings. I don't have time for their troubles. And just dismiss them. But he doesn't. He notices they were dejected and asks them a question and asks them why they are dejected. Because he's interested in their problem. Often we tend to not ask a question because we don't want to know. Because once people voice their problem, it also potentially could become our problem. So the less you know, the easier. But Joseph is a servant. And he makes that choice to notice and engage with a question and find out what's wrong. And then he helps them out. When he finds out it's a dream that needs an interpretation, he points towards God and he's helping them by asking God to give him the interpretation. He's ready to pay attention. He's ready to ask a question. He's ready to take some action. That's a person who serves. And you can see those traits in the response that Joseph has towards them. There's episode number three. When this time, places change. Until now, we find him in the first two episodes choosing to serve in adversity, when he's down, when he's in a difficult place. This time, as the story unfolds, you find out that in the end, he gets out of prison because he interprets Pharaoh's dreams as well. After a long wait and another delay and a, 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 another disappointment, but he gets out of there and he becomes so trusted and influential because God's hand is upon his life that actually he becomes the prime minister or the equivalent of the prime minister of Egypt. And he engages with the impending famine that is coming upon the whole region. So he ends up in a position of power. And just at that time, his brothers are coming from home in desperation because Egypt became the only place where food was available. So they're coming to search for food and they're coming into contact with him. And as they're coming into contact with him, now he's making the same choice to serve, but not in a place of adversity, but in a place of authority. When he's up, not just when he's down, he's serving, but he's serving when he's up. And here's the choice as his brothers are coming to him. As he's climbing up to the dizzy heights of power and his brothers are coming to him, he, he can respond in different ways. They're looking for food. They're desperate. He recognizes them and he tests them and he begins to help them, but he doesn't reveal his identity yet. Now, 
Joseph could have chosen to be fair towards them. He could have been Mr. Fair and he could have taken that option where he would have said, what's fair is fair. You guys sold me into slavery. I'm just going to refuse to help you. What's fair is fair. Replying in the same way. You treated me wrongly. You were absolutely awful towards me. And I'm totally entitled to treat you the same way. You treated me as an enemy and so will I. So when you're coming looking for food on your way, get lost. He could have been Mr. Fair. Another option, he could have been Mr. Nice. Where he could have said, you know what? I'll help you once. But I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'll give you a little bit of help once because I'm a nice guy. But I don't want to have anything to do with you. You know how often we say in life, and, and, and you, you've heard this. I forgive you, but I won't forget. I just won't forget. So I'll help you this time, but don't ever come again. This is it. Because I'm nice. Instead, we find Joseph because he takes the option of being a servant, being Mr. Grace. You know what grace is? Undeserved favour. It's not getting what we deserve. And he is incredible because in his servanthood, what he does, he doesn't just help them with food, but he's saying, come over, be my recognised family and I will plead with Pharaoh and you can all come and bring your whole families in this place of wealth and well-being in the midst of a famine. And you can get established in Goshen and be in a particular area of this wonderful country where God is blessing us and have a privileged status. That's what a servant does. And that's what Joseph does. He's not Mr. Fair. He's not Mr. Nice. He's Mr. Grace. And he goes the extra mile in order to bless his family. And it's just amazing. He doesn't just, you know, forget. He forgives, but he also forget, forgets. But on top of it all, he goes the extra mile. He says, I would serve you. I will forgive you, I will forget, and I will serve you. And it's an incredibly powerful statement of service that he brings. Kevin Miller, an editor of a well-known Christian magazine, before preparing his sermon, he did a little survey on Facebook asking people the question, what makes it hard for you to serve other people? And here are some of the answers that people brought. Somebody said, serving is hard, when it doesn't fit in to my schedule or plan. Like when I want to go for a walk or take a long bath, but my aging parent needs me to sort their meds, run an errand or simply be with them. Somebody else said, it's hard when, when somebody's needs seem endless. I don't want to risk helping or serving because I may get sucked in. Being swallowed up in the serving and not getting to be the me I think I am or I should be makes me not want to serve. Somebody else said, there is such limited energy left after a demanding workday, meeting our basic responsibilities, whether with young kids or the corporate world, 
how do you balance the need for rest and self-care and still leave some room for serving others? But the most brilliant one was this. What makes it hard to serve? Others. Serving isn't easy. You and I know this. It isn't easy. So it almost makes it even more amazing what you see in Joseph's life. But you know, there is a better Joseph. His name was Jesus. And I had a slip of the tongue earlier on when I, instead of saying and reading Joseph, I said Jesus. Jesus is the better Joseph. Because really he is the one that shows us what true servanthood is like. And if we are calling ourselves Christ followers, it means we follow into his footsteps. There is this beautiful episode when Jesus is with the disciples and he washes their feet. He does the most menial and probably most humiliating job a servant could do to demonstrate what he was like. And that was impressive. Surprising, unexpected, but the ultimate gift of servanthood that Jesus gives not just to his disciples, but to every human being is his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. He took my place. He took my punishment. And instead of me paying the price for my sin, Jesus said, I'm doing this instead of you as the ultimate sacrifice an ultimate act of servanthood. Jesus is the most amazing servant that's ever lived. And if I'm calling myself the follower of Jesus, I'm following in his footsteps. There was a moment in Jesus's ministry when Salome, the mother of two of his disciples, known as the sons of Zebedee, is coming up to him and he says, can you just make one sit at your right? side and one on your left side. In other words, can you can you make them leaders, Jesus, in your crew? And Jesus is saying they, they, they can't handle the kind of leadership, servant leadership that I'm about to show them. Because the Son of Man has come to serve, not to be served. Why was Joseph able to live as a servant? It's because of God. Is because he had that trust in God that knew that God is faithful to his promise. And he knew that God is sovereign, that nothing happens, even the bad things, without God being able to redeem them. God, for Joseph, was a sovereign redeemer that he could trust. And in that waiting room, he could make the choice to serve simply not because he was a good person, but because his God was a God who was both sovereign and the Redeemer. And he made that choice. And I think in reality is for us, as we want with all our hearts to be servants like Jesus and like Joseph, we can't do it. I want to say to you, if you don't follow Jesus, if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, if you haven't crossed over the line and said, Jesus, I'm allowing you to take control of my life and I want to be known as a Christian. I want to be known as a Jesus follower. You need to take that step. Because otherwise, 
all the good servanthood that you want to bring in your life and from your life will always be self-centered. It is only in Jesus, as Jesus comes to live in us, as we surrender our life to him by his spirit. It's only in him that we could live selfless servant lives. Otherwise, there would always be ulterior motives for which we serve. Either guilt or the desire to be liked. So I'm encouraging you to take this step today after this message. You can pray and you can you can say, Jesus, I want to be your follower. I want to surrender my life. I want to thank you for dying on the cross and paying for my sin and wanting to come and take control of my life. So I could live the life of a servant and I could make that choice. And I encourage you to, 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 to make that step, to take that decision, which is absolutely fundamental to living this life of a servant that I think we all want to live. But here is the thing, as you maybe have started already on the journey of faith, and you might find yourself saying, Christy, what you just said, I've done, I've done it maybe two months ago or 20 years ago. Fantastic. But I want to remind you that the journey of this life is part of our spiritual formation. And for Joseph, the tough experiences that he's gone through, here's the reality. You and I will get hurt by others. And we can't control that. It's not justifiable. There's no excuses. It's awful. But how I respond and how you respond to the hurt from others, it is our choice. While we can't control the context, we can control how we respond to it. And I would hope that we would see some of the difficulties that we go through when we choose to still be servants just to see them as a potential opportunity for God to mold us and develop something amazing in our hearts you know when we go through the difficult times we achieve and receive something that can't be bought. It's the greatest currency in terms of coming alongside other people. It's that currency of empathy and identification that enables us to say to others in all honesty, I know how that feels. Let's not miss out the opportunity for God to redemptively take maybe the harsh and bad things others have done to us unjustly and transform them into a deeper understanding so that we could come alongside and become servants of those around us by being able to walk shoulder to shoulder and say, I know how that feels like. I want to encourage all of us to simply because you might say, well, you know, where do we start? Start where you are. Wherever God has placed you, choose to see that place as a place where you can start right where you are. And you might say, well, well who do I serve? I keep reminding you of Andy Sandy saying, when, when you get stuck and you're thinking, oh, who do I start with? Just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Start with one person. 
Start being a servant in your home. Start being a servant in your workplace. Start serving in the church. Start serving in your local community. Just maybe pick up one thing and do it for one person. But begin to develop a lifestyle that chooses to serve. I tell you what, it's crowded at the leadership spot. It's pretty empty as a servant spot. So there's fantastic opportunities that are there. And really encourage you to do this. People often say, I don't, I don't, know, what, I, I don't know who to help. And then they say, I don't know what to do. Do something practical. It's the love language everybody speaks and everybody can speak. Do something practical. Find out something practical you could do in order to serve somebody else. So start where you are. Do for one what you can do for all. And be practical. Speak that love language that you can and everybody else can understand. A real encouragement to comes from Simon Sinek. Simon Sinek is one of the most brilliant current leadership uh, specialists, uh, writing really good stuff on leadership. He wrote a bestseller called Leaders Eat Last. And in it, he's looking at what makes teams being successful. And he found himself spending a lot of time with people in the armed forces, in the United States Armed Forces. And here were his findings that are absolutely staggering. He found himself amazed and even humbled by the character of the men and women that were in the forces. And he asked himself, where does this character come from? And maybe at the beginning he thought, these are very special people, a special class of people. They are better than us. But while working alongside them in Afghanistan and researching for his writings, Sinek had an experience that revised this premise. And this is what he explains. Everything went wrong on our trip. We actually got stuck there because the base came under rocket attack when I was there. And it was there really where I understood what service and servanthood really means. Service means giving to others with no expectation of anything in return. Fulfillment, calm, security, peace of mind, confidence, all come from a willingness to serve others. Because only when I decided that I could look after others, I did find that calm and security and peace of mind. Sinek discovered that the servicemen and servicewomen have a special role in, in defending the country and playing their part, but they are not a class on themselves because they are special, but it's their attitude and their choice to serve that makes them different. Here is what he says, the rank of office is not what makes someone a leader. Leadership is the choice to serve others with or without any formal rank. Leaders are the ones that run headfirst into the unknown. They rush towards the danger. They put their own interests aside to protect us or to pull us into the future. Leaders would sooner sacrifice what is theirs to save what is ours. And they would never sacrifice what is ours to save what is theirs. This is what it means to serve as a leader. This is such a compelling reminder from a contemporary secular leadership guru who is seeing it in action as people choose to serve. 
Let us pray as we finish with a benediction that Richard Halverson, a former chaplain at the United States Senate and also a pastor at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland, wrote. Let's pray this as a benediction and as a blessing of our lives. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of the Spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, in his love and in his power. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.